If you're listening to this, I know you're wanting to scale your mortgage business. We did the pre-launch for this show. We started to share with the mortgage community and people reached out to us and said, hey, how do I get on the $100 million journey? We listened and created a series of workshops called the Mortgage Blueprint. We have a blueprint for people at 25 million, 50 and 100. If you're listening to this, you're probably aiming at one of those goals and these blueprints will help you get there. Go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com slash blueprint to sign up and find out when we'll be in your city. So my first hire was the biggest hurdle. And then what I realized pretty quickly is as soon as you are able to delegate and not have to do something that you hate doing anymore, it's a pretty liberating and freeing thing. Want to rock your mortgage business? Then crank up the volume with your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, it's Scott Peckford from $100 Million Journey, Episode 3. This is a new project we're working on, and we're totally jacked. It's a part video, part podcast series called The $100 Million Journey, and we're going to apply everything that we've learned from 160-plus interviews in real time to my business partner's business with the goal of getting her from $8 million a year in production to 100. We're going to document it via video, all the ups and downs, and over the next 12 months, we'll be producing two podcast interviews per month with a high-producing mortgage professional who can help Jules on her journey, and we'll also have maybe a specialist or two, depending on what problem we find she's having in her business. Our hope is that you can learn from our mistakes and successes so you can go out and scale your business and build the business of your dreams. On this episode, I talked to Andrew Sauce. Andrew's a $100 million producer out of the US and is an amazing dude. I took so many notes from our conversation. Three insights I got from our chat. He shares how Yelp leads are better than realtor leads. He shares how a formula for how he got 130 Yelp reviews. And he even gave me some stuff that I honestly said to him at one point in the interview. I'm like, dude, you sure you want me to like, not, I can cut this out. And he's like, no, no, you can totally share it, which is awesome. And he also has this incredibly robust pre-approval package that he uses to get more uh, offers accepted as well as to build, it's basically like marketing, um, you know, it's like guerrilla marketing. It's totally rad. You're going to love it. So this episode was a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy it. This show is sponsored by ClientCaller.com. After 160 plus interviews, I can tell you with absolute certainty, one of the most effective ways to increase your business is to consistently call your past clients. The key word being consistently. I can also tell you that most mortgage pros struggle with this because they're too busy working in their business. ClientCaller is an amazing service where a professional calling assistant calls your past clients for you. The cool thing is they use your phone number on the caller ID and your voice on the voicemail. The callers look like they're sitting in your office. However, all our callers are located in North America and love talking on the phone. The feedback for the service has been amazing. You can check out testimonials from real people just like you at clientcaller.com. If you're interested in getting set up on this service, visit clientcaller.com and tell them you heard about it on the podcast. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the business? Sure. So um, I started uh, in residential finance in 2001. First five and a half, six years of my career, I was in uh, doing commercial lending, so commercial real estate, multifamily. So in end of 2006 is when I first got into residential lending and have kind of grown it organically, really exploded and, and started doing real numbers in roughly 2010, 2011, and have been between 90 and 130 million roughly uh, every year since 2012. Okay, so what happened? This is this is really interesting to me. So what happened in 2010 that made it click? Or what well, I mean, obviously, your market got punched in the face 2008. Sure. You know, in the mortgage biz is like, man, that's a that's tough. So what happened in 2010? Was it partially market turning? And then what other things were you doing activity wise? I think it was a lot of factors that sort of aligned at that time for us. So, you know, just doing it for coming up on third, fourth year in the business, you you know, things start to click. So you get better at what you're doing. You made a lot of mistakes. And ideally, if you're good at what you do, you learn from them. But combined with that, obviously, the market turning rates dropping, uh, had a big impact on it. We had some good success with some direct mail, but probably the biggest factor that really had a, a needle moving effect was my early adaptation of social media, mainly online reviews. So I was uh, kind of fell into getting a couple of online reviews from some of my clients and then saw the power of that, especially back then. I mean, that was 
you know, Yelp reviews in 2011 for a mortgage guy was like Google pay-per-click circa 2001, right? Where you can get all of the traffic really easily. It's a bit of a different game now because everybody kind of understands that. So unless you're in the, unless you're super, super high up in some of those reviews. Uh, but back then it was super easy to get reviews, super easy to get a lot of traffic out of those reviews. So that's probably the biggest single factor, but combine that with learning and getting better and, you know, swiping and adapting stuff from other people is really what took me from kind of that 20, 30 million first couple of years to, to getting up to that, you know, 60, 90, 120. Right. That's awesome. So I just kind of did a quick Google of you while you're chatting. And so I see you have a currently like 130 Yelp reviews, which is like mm -hmm. crazy because Yelp is they, they don't always show them all even. Mm -hmm. What percentage of your business do you think is from people that are finding you through this currently? Yelp's interesting. It's different in different markets, but Google is the same in pretty much every market. I mean, the power of Yelp is not people going on Yelp and searching. That happens more so in the what I call Yelp-centric markets, so like Bay Area, which is where I started my business. Major metropolitan areas are going to have more people searching for more than just restaurants directly on Yelp. But that's not really the power. That's probably you know, 10 20% of the power of having a lot of Yelp reviews. A majority of it is Google search. So you, exactly what you just did, you Googled me, and the first thing that came up was not my website, very likely. It was Yelp, right? Because Yelp has super strong organic pull on Google because it's everything that Google is looking for. It's highly relevant. It's a lot of unique users. It is a lot of fresh content. So um, Yelp's almost always the first thing that pulls up if you Google mortgage insert city here in almost every major area. So I figured instead of, you know, at that time, we into search engine optimization, search engine marketing, pay-per-click. And I figured to spend the amount of money and time and effort and get to get good at pulling up high on Google to compete with the B of A's and the Quicken Loans and the cash calls of the world is kind of a losing game. So mm -hmm. instead, I focused on having a high profile on some of these review sites and allowing myself to kind of piggyback on their organic search engine optimization. So my website isn't the first thing that pops up even when you type in my name directly, but certainly not when you type in, you know, I'm in Newport Beach, California. So if you type in mortgage Newport Beach, like my website's probably third, fourth page, but Yelp is always number one. And so I just wanted to be number one on, yeah, on that. So that's a big piece of how people find me um, organically is Googling for mortgages and having Yelp populate high. And then obviously that's even better than them finding your website, right? It's 130 third-party people saying what a great job Andrew did. Mm -hmm. uh, so from a validation standpoint, it pulls through like the leads that come through on Yelp are significantly better than any other leads that I get, including realtor referrals, including referrals from my mom. Why do you think that is? Because they stumbled upon it, right? So like a realtor refers you and as much as you trust your realtor as a buyer, hey, you got to use my guy, Andrew. Great. <clears throat> That's a good referral for sure. But you still have in the back of your head, well, who knows why this realtor is referring me to this guy? Is it because they're getting a kickback? Is it because there's some other reason? If you stumble upon 130 people all saying the same thing, it's the difference between your friend whose opinion you trust saying, hey, this restaurant is great, and you going on Yelp and seeing 500 five-star reviews saying this restaurant is great. By the way, try the oysters. By the way, you know, amazing service, all saying the same thing. So, I mean, again, and so the in terms of how much business I get from it, what's funny is I got probably more business from it when I had 25 reviews than when I have 130. And the reason is not how many reviews you have. It's how many reviews you have relative to your market. So when I had 25 and everyone else had one or two, I got all of I sucked out all the oxygen in the room. No one else was getting anything organically from that. You were like the Beyonce of Yelp. I was the Beyonce of Yelp. That's right. Yeah. I get compared to Beyonce all the time. <laughs> Me too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. Now I have 130 reviews, but there's people with uh, in my market with 70 and 50. So we're pretty much sharing. But like the people with 25 get nothing, right? So it's all pretty much the first three. It's kind of like being first page of Google. It's a significant difference of being the first one on the first page and the fifth one on the first page. And then being page two is a big giant leap down from that. So in terms of the amount of business that I get from it, it's traditionally been the three pillars of my business have traditionally been, well, over the past five years, a third Yelp, a third past client, and a third referrals from realtors. 
slightly skews higher when rates are low to past clients because, you know, past clients are generally people that I help purchase. And most of my past client business is uh, refi in a low rate market. So, you know, refinancing the past clients. But I mean, you can attribute some of that back to Yelp, right? So like I have, I mean, all three of these things kind of interplay with each other too. Like I get a somebody that calls me from Yelp, I meet with them, I help them buy a house, and then I refi them. Like, is that does that come from Yelp or does that come from a past client? Well, it's both. So like the direct business is usually a third, a third, a third, but I can, if we trace back to where a lot of that stuff came from, a lot of it is Yelp. Even my realtor referrals, you can trace back a lot to Yelp because a lot of times I get people without realtors and I'm then referring them to a realtor and I build up that relationship with that realtor. So they send me someone else. Well, where did that come from? Right. It's currency essentially for your business, right? So sometimes you can slice and dice these ref the referral sources to be, you know, a third of it came from, you know, a third of this person who got referred to me by the realtor, like a portion of that is because of my Yelp profile a portion of it is because of, because, of, and then also like just even if they didn't get that realtor or that referral from Yelp, it's also the other piece of it, which is why it's important for other people, even if they're in a market where maybe they're not going to get a lot of organic traffic from Yelp, it's important still to get Yelp or in other social media reviews. So like Zillow reviews are important too. Google reviews, Facebook reviews. Yeah, I was about to ask you about Zillow. So I, I just jumped on your Zillow and it's you got like five star, 62 five star reviews. So how is Zillow better, different than Yelp? So you can certainly point people to Zillow and show them your reviews. That's And that works. Um, it's much higher. So when you do a lot of advertising on Zillow specifically, obviously it's more important to have Zillow reviews because that's where they're finding you. So the reviews are kind of right in their face. I found those to be less impactful than Yelp. Uh, people go on Yelp tend to trust those a little bit more. And I think a big piece of that is because of Yelp's filtering system. It's hard to game the system. It's not easy to game the Zillow system either because they do some validation, but it's a lot easier to get Zillow reviews than it is to get Yelp reviews. And you have to, I guess the other thing is that I'm looking at this, if Zillow has paid placement, does Yelp has paid placement as well? It must. They do. Yeah. Even for a mortgage broker, you can have paid placement on Yelp. Mm -hmm. oh, and, and have you experimented with any of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how have you found it? No idea. <laughs> oh, you have so, you have experimented or you haven't? I, I have, and I have no idea if it works or not. Oh. So when it, when somebody calls and says, and I say, oh, great, you have a good conversation. Hey, by the way, how did you find me? Oh, I found you online. Like nine times out of ten, I know that's from Yelp. So, Or even if they say, oh, I found you on Yelp. I'm not going to dig in and say, oh, on Yelp, did you click on the ad? What, what Was it the ad or was it the organic search? Like, I'm not going to dig into that. So I don't know. That's true. And I'm pulling so high organically already. It's actually very difficult to calculate ROI on that. But it's cheap enough to where I know that I, if I get one deal every three or four months. So and it's also a defensive play because if you're an advertiser, nobody can advertise in your Yelp profile. So I'm just also playing a little bit of defense there too. I don't want anybody else in my market to really think that Yelp is a big way of getting business because I don't want to dilute the existing business I get. So again, I'm trying to suck the oxygen out of the room a bit. Okay, so that's awesome. So Zillow, you said, and if you found the quality of referrals from Zillow to be just not quite the same as Yelp? I don't get anything organically off of Zillow. Or if I do, it's few and far between. But we do a, a bit of advertising on Zillow. So it's important to have your Zillow profile strengthened if you're doing some advertising in there. So we do some co-marketing, we do some Zillow long form stuff that is decent ROI. So we've been sort of, you know, as we ask for reviews on past clients, um, we kind of split them between Yelp and Zillow. And I, what I'd really like to do as well, like moving in the future as I, because the difference between having 130 Yelp reviews and having 150 is nothing. But having one Google review that I have right now, maybe two versus having 20 is big. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to push people to Google and Facebook reviews at this point and trying to spread out my profile across multiple platforms um, instead of aggregating all into one. Because at some point, like, you know, it's kind of the, there's not a big difference between having 130, 150, 250. At some point it's like, okay, we get it. He's good right? in that platform. So it's important to stay on the top as much as possible. So like you always have to be, if you've got some up and comers and getting a lot of reviews, you have to make sure you still, you know, have as many or, or more than they do. But, um, the, the currency of those reviews are more valuable, you know, building up my profile elsewhere because more people are going to see that. And, and again, having one review on Facebook is not nearly as powerful as having 20. 
So right. I'd rather take those 20 people, if I'm going to ask them to review me somewhere, I'd rather do it on Facebook or uh, Google. You said something about long form to do with Zillow. What did you mean by long form? Oh, Zillow long form is just a lead source that they have. So long form means that they have clients who are looking to get pre-approved and they fill out 10 or 15 fields. So they call it long form instead of just somebody clicking saying, yes, I'd like to get pre-approved and leaving a name and phone number or email address. It's actually taking them through a longer process. So they're a little bit stronger leads. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And you could, you could purchase those leads from Zillow. And another question I have is, so how often do you ask for the reviews and how are you helping make it easy for them? Is there anything you're doing for that? Yeah. So um, we, we do it at, so I, I plant a seed, especially if somebody found me off of one of these sites, I plant a seed in the beginning that um, set up an expectation that we're, we want to deliver a five-star service to them. And at closing, uh, if we're able to do that, we would love if they would share their experiences, how I use it. I don't ever ask for a five-star review. I always just say, hey, would you be able to share your experience about our team on one of these sites? So it's a part of my post-closing or at-closing, you know, kind of follow-up, putting a button on the whole experience. I have a, a phone call that I do where I, you know, talk about here's your first, this is your first payment's going to be, here's this, and then, oh, by the way, would you be able to do this? So there are a couple of services that I've used in the past that are actually pretty good, but I didn't find myself executing on them, not for the fault of the service uh, piece of software, but um, there's a company called Reputation Loop that's really good where you can just dump in and have it automate that post-closing uh, review process where it, it like, will ask them for, you know, to share a testimonial or share a review, like rate you one to five stars. And if, you, if it rates you five stars and the next screen is it, it gives them links to very quickly cut and paste that onto a Yelp or Zillow, wherever you want to push them. So we did Yelp, Zillow, and Google. And so that can drive a little bit more of asking for the reviews. You have to be careful with Yelp a bit because Yelp really doesn't want you to solicit for reviews. They want it to happen organically. So you got to be careful um, on that, you definitely don't want to just send out a mass email and tell everybody to review you on Yelp. Because if they saw 20 show up in a day, they'd be like, exactly. Whoa. What are the chances that somebody had this Yelp profile for five years and had three reviews and then all of a sudden 20 people decided to go there? Right. I mean, that's like it's algorithm is saying, oh, red flag. This is somebody who's soliciting for reviews. Does Google uh, have anything like that that you know of? You know, I don't know. I don't believe so, but I, I, I don't. I'm not aware that they do or not. Right. Okay. Zillow validates reviews based because you have to put the address in. So they actually go and check that there was a transaction that happened on that address with that person. Oh, I see. So it's actually, it has to be a legit. Mm -hmm. What if it was a refinance though? How would they know? Well, there's public records showing that there's a transaction on a refi. Okay. Uh, yeah. In Can I'm, so we're in, I'm in Canada. We don't, mm. more, we've got like privacy laws like crazy. So you would be hard to find that. So here there's, at least where I'm in California, I'm guessing it's everywhere, but you can see a transaction history of the liens that have gone on a property. So. Right. You can you can do a title search, but you have to pay for it. So, I, I mean, I'm mm. yeah, anyway, I'm highly doubting they're going to pay money to just grab that data to validate a Got review it. for thousands of, you know, reviews. But, well, you know, I mean, it's actually important for Zillow to, well, more so for Yelp. I mean, Yelp's whole, the whole reason they validate reviews is because they want them to be authentic and real. They don't want people to be able to game the system because if people can game the system, then people won't trust Yelp. And Yelp, you know, they're they're a bit Nazi about it because they understand that their reputation of recommending only certain reviews is the secret to their whole amount of traffic that they get. If it became an easy to game the system and everybody had five stars, or everybody had one star, you know, because your competitors are going on and, and gaming the system and putting a bunch of one stars on you then it's less relevant. So when people go on, they're not going to, but by and large, Yelp's pretty dang good at that. Like if you go to have a, and have a really good experience at a restaurant or at a service provider, invariably, if you go and check Yelp, they generally have good reviews. And if you forgot to check Yelp and you had a really shitty experience, pardon my French, you generally will go there and they'll, the, those reviews tend to match, tend to aggregate pretty quickly. Right. It's accuracy. Could you respond to reviews in any of the, across any of these platforms? Yep. Yeah. So as a business owner, you can uh, write a response to those. There's, I have Yelp encourages that. Um, they think, and, and a lot of you know marketing people encourage you to you know thank somebody for the review. I tend to not do it. I tend to only respond when there's the odd negative review, and I've got 130 reviews in there. I think three of them are negative. I'll respond, and I always, I never, ever, ever like 
make it a he said, she said thing. I always just own it, whether it's my fault or not. I always just own it. And I'm super transparent, like, hey, we dropped the ball on this one. Like, you know, and, and really, like, if you actually dig through and search for one stars on my Yelp page, which I'm guessing everybody probably will go do now, um, you'll see how I respond to those. And that I think is actually you can turn a one star into a good experience because it's so rare that somebody will own it. And, and I have so many other good reviews on there that it sort of washes out and everybody's everybody will take it with a grain of salt like okay like this person you know they screwed up but they owned it and and look at all the other good experiences that people have had so that's the only time i respond i don't thank people for the reviews because i i just worry about the perception and the implication that like people think that i'm somehow gaming that system i really want people to stumble upon that yelp profile as much as possible Right. Okay. Yeah, actually, I just went and did a search for your lowest ratings as well. Oh, thanks. Great. Yeah. Actually, I clicked the wrong button. I was about to give you a one star. I'm like, whoa, that's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> don't, no, don't like, do that. <laughs> I'm like, one star, eek, me thinks not. I'm like, what? I'm, I'm, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Anyway. Okay, that's cool. All right. So I have a few other questions that I want to ask you, but we kind of dove into this, but this is an awesome topic. So I really appreciate yeah. you letting me go deep in this because this is an area that in our business right now that we have sort of we've changed company names and so we have to rebuild all this and so this is fantastic yeah. to kind of get your insights on what we're doing so sure. so you've been in the mortgage business now since 2006 and then you said it, so obviously figuring out this this google system or the getting reviews was really helpful but you also had to build a team at some point i'm assuming so mm -hmm. tell me about yeah. how what did that look like and how did you figure out how to put your team together so that you could support a hundred million dollar business. I mean, that's been the biggest, you know, source of constant tweaking. So getting the right people in place is, is incredibly difficult. So here, here are the things that as a team leader, you have to consider when you're going to add somebody on your team, a, what are they going to do? B does what they're going to do fit their areas of strength? C, well, I'll go, I'll go to three because I'm going to lose my alphabet here in a second. So one, two, three, does what their strengths are actually match what they like to do? Somebody might be really, really good at digging ditches, but they might hate being outside. Right. Does that actually match with what they're passionate about? Four, what is their growth plan? So are they willing to come in like entry level and then, and then you have a specific plan for how they're going to move up? Five, what are you going to pay them? Six, does what you're going to pay them match with what their expectations are and what they need to live on? Seven, how are you going to structure their pay? Is it going to be more, is it going to be more variable? Like, are they cool with having bigger highs and lower lows or do they want, do they value stability? Eight, who's going to take on the variability? Is it going to be that me as a manager who's paying it or are they going to take on that, that variability? And, and what's the combination there? So usually there's some sort of combo of, you know, base plus bonus type of thing. So you have to match that to what your expectations are and what their expectations are. You know, nine, what are their actual, you know, how are they going to fit within their actual role within the other team mates? Like what, what, how are those people going to interact 10, are they a good culture fit? That should have been number one. Like, is it like, who are you actually hiring? Are you bringing them in? Is it going to be fit well within the team? Are they going to play well with others? 11, does what you're paying them and, and how they fit and everything, does that work for where your team is going? 12, does that fit economically within where the market is at? Can you afford them? Are you growing into them or hiring them because you're already busting at the seams or somewhere in between? And if, even if you line up all 12 of those things, there's probably four or five more that I'm not even thinking of. Did you just come up with that list? Like, do you have that written down in front of you or is that just out of your head? No, I just top of my head. Oh, my goodness. So here's what I'm going to do. Anybody listening to this, we're going to put that into a PDF so you can grab it on the site because that was awesome. Like, honestly, it's it's a really helpful. Like, I can't believe it. Like, let's like literally shake you in the middle of the night, wake you up. Okay, what kind of things do you think about for hiring an employee? Oh, I got, an, I got 12 things. And I'm like, what? Well, I mean, all those have to... Uh, have, I mean, there's, it's really, really complicated to come up with, to, to determine who to bring on, how to bring. And then, and then, and then if, even if you line up all 12 of those things and probably the four or five others I'm not thinking of, that's great for the market that you're in. What happens if the market shifts? What happens if you go from, you know, for me, I, I do, let's say an average of 10 million a month. What happens if it goes down to 5 million? Mm, then what? Then now you've got, you know, in my case, I've got nine other people that are, my uh, production is supporting. Mm, what do you do? Do you, do you wait it out? Do you adjust the roles? Do you, and also, so that's the market shift. So let's say the market stays exactly the same. That's great. What happens if this person like, Hey, they're outgrowing their position. They're really good. Okay. So we're going to move them up to this. What does that do? It like shifts all of the other roles of everyone else. So 
this is something building a team, especially in the mortgage industry where it's like, it's basically you have to, I, the way I think of it is like, you know, more manufacturing than, you know, service, the customer service. It's, it's a manufacturing process. There's so many little, there's 900 little things that need to happen on any given deal on any given customer life cycle that we want to happen. We need to make sure that they're not slipping through the cracks. And we've got nine different people handling different aspects of this customer life cycle. As something becomes more important and grows in scope, that necessarily affects everyone else on the team. Mm-hmm. As we say, okay, we want to, I'll give you a good example. We recently revamped our pre-approval letter process. We uh, previously sent out just a letter, pre-approval letter. Here you go. So it's a pretty easy process. We've In our market, we've seen where people are wanting, it's a super competitive seller's market. So what, whatever we can do to add value to the client outside of just giving away the farm and giving just a lower rate, we want to really add value. And, and one of the ways that we add value is helping them get their offer accepted when they're up against three or four other offers. And one way that we can easily do that without them just overpaying for the house is putting together a really, really robust pre-approval package to give a lot of confidence to the seller and the listing agent that we've done all of our due diligence on this buyer and that financing will not be an issue. So part of what we do is not just send out a pre-approval letter, but we actually also send out a lot of the supporting backup, supporting documentation redacted. So there's no personal information on there, but we'll send a proof of funds. We'll send copies of their credit scores, again, all redacted. So there's no personal information, but they can see, okay, this guy, this lending team actually knows what the heck they're doing. And we'll also send out, you know, some information about us. So they know that who they're, who they're relying on to get the financing for this transaction completed. So it's a bit of marketing of us as well. So there's some selfish reasons to it, but it also, we've seen a huge pull through on our clients winning offers because we put together a really strong package and we have, there's no question about the financing. So it really just comes down to the price. Um, so they're, you know, if, as long as they're competitive on price, they're usually going to choose us. So this is something that we've identified as being something that's valuable for our clients but that now requires a good extra maybe 15, 20 minutes of work on every every time they're writing an offer, whereas before just changing the address and changing the offer price on the pre-approval letter and sending it out, and it might take three minutes. Now it's probably an extra 15 minutes to put all that whole package together, make sure it's accurate, redact it. It's a bigger process, and when you're you know, writing 30, 40, 50 offers a month, that uh, adds up. So that means that, okay, who's going to be in charge of that? Somebody on my team that was doing pre-approvals before, now they're going to be doing this. It's going to be taking an extra hour or two out of their day to be managing this thing. We feel like that's a good use of their time, but it's not like they had an extra one or two hours a day of doing nothing. So either they get more efficient at what they're doing, or I pay overtime, or I carve something else off of their role that either I deem as, as less important and they don't have to do anymore, or I have somebody else take on that role. So it's a this constant, like, where are we handing the baton off? What roles do we feel like are important? How does this impact customer experience? And that that is a never-ending constant source of me as a leader analyzing, discussing, empowering, soliciting input from my team on, on how it's working because I'm not necessarily on the front lines like they are maybe. And really collaborating and coming together to figure out what the best way is with the mindset that, you know, everything is driven by the the, the customer experience. Right. Okay. Just a couple of things. One, I had to look up the word redacted when you were talking because I'm like, I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? So if anybody who doesn't know, if you're like, it's actually like obscure or blackout, a, you know, a word on a document. Yeah. So like if account numbers, you know, we, we black out the account numbers and the, and the personal information. So like we're sending off copies of credit scores, like we're just going to highlight the scores themselves and obviously not their social security number and all that stuff. What's in that package? Cover letter introducing who we are as a team, how, you know, we're here's who's going to be working on your file. We're the highest rated lender in Southern California, et cetera. So like a little one page, little bio of us as a team, contact information. So they have it. Second page is the actual pre-approval letter stating how much they're writing the offer for, what the address is, um, how much they're putting down, sort of in terms of the deal. The Third section is a copy of their credit scores highlighted. The fourth section is their proof of funds for the down payment. So we get their banks, like basically just page ones of their bank statements, block out all the account numbers and circle the funds so they can see that they have liquid funds to be able to close for their down payment. And then the fourth part is a, this is a a U.S. thing, so your Canada listeners won't know, but DU 
uh, is automated underwriting system for most uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA loans has a DU. So a lot of times they, they like to see a copy of the DU to see that you've already run it and you've got it approved eligible. So it's like the ins- the insurance, the mortgage default insurance. Or is it like a pre-certificate that says that these people look like they'll get approved? Yeah, automated underwriting is something that you run through any conventional conforming FHA deal, any non-jumbo deal. Basically, you run through this uh, computer software program called uh, DU for Fannie Mae or LP for for Freddie Mac, and it aggregates all of their information, credit scores, income, all that stuff, and it spits out that, yes, it's approved. And if you follow your findings on there, then your loan will be insured by Fannie or Freddie. Right. Okay, that's great. And then that that's an awesome. So how do you, you know, what about your clients? Do you have clients that are like, "Hey, I don't want to do that." Like what's the conversation like if I'm a yeah. client and you're like, "Hey, you're going to send them my credit report?" Like Yeah, yeah. I actually like that those conversations. It allows me to add value. It allows me to explain how I'm adding value to them. So, you know, what I don't want to become is just a robot who is because if you're just a robot, then all you are is a commodity, then all you, all you can compete on is price. And I don't want to only compete on price. Obviously, I have to offer competitive rates, but I don't want that to be the only reason people are using me. So this is an opportunity for me to add additional value, like how awesome is it for, yes, we got you a good rate. That's awesome. Yes, our fees are competitive. Great. You know, six months down the road, you won't even remember what your rate is. You won't remember how much you paid in fees. You will remember if you got the house or not. Mm-hmm. So the most value that I can add is even adding a 10 or 15% chance at you getting the home that you want without overpaying for it is real value. So you can, you know, the kind of the conversation that I have with buyers, listen, you can go get any house you want. You just have to pay top dollar for it. What I want to be able to do is put together the best offer for you, present you in the best light such that you're one of two or three that are offering the same, or even you might be five grand less, but because the seller has confidence that this loan is going to close on time and we've done more than just send off a, a letter that anybody can print out on a Word document, we've actually sent the backup backing information and I follow up with a phone call to the listing agent to explain everything about the transaction. You're now going to win those deals that you were tied with before or even pay less than, you know, if you have a top offer that they're not confident that the, the loan's going to go through. Listen, if somebody pays 10 or 20 grand more for the house, they're going to get it. So like, it's not magic, but it's going to probably save you a good between maybe zero to $10,000. Or if you're the same offer, like you're going to win over someone who doesn't have this level of confidence that they're exuding through the pre-approval. Ty goes to the person who's prepped. In a seller's market, nobody wants to take the house off the market, only to have to put it back on 20 days later. It has a stigma associated with it. Yeah, because people think, what did they find in the that made the property a problem, even though it could have just been a financing problem? Exactly. Yeah, and everybody says it fell through due to financing, but you never quite know. You never know, oh, maybe it's something that they found about the property. Well, what is it? Maybe now I'm going to look harder at my inspection report. Maybe now I'm going to, like, is there something that they know that I don't know? Am I missing something? So nobody wants to do that. You know, also a lot of times people are, sellers are trying to buy a house too. So they don't want to, from a timing perspective, what they want to do is if they're getting into bed with someone for 30 days, they want to make sure that they know who that is and there's that amount of confidence. So we want to take that, alleviate that concern, take that off of the table and present it in the best light. And so that's the conversation I have. Never had one person who's been like, oh yeah, don't send it. Right. Okay. That's amazing. I've never heard of that before. So I guess as long as you have, and do you get something in writing permission saying that you're going to share this with the... No, but I, when I do the initial pre-approval, I send them the full package to them. I said, here, here's what you're going to give to your agent to submit. Now we usually customize that when they're actually writing an offer, but we send it to them ahead of time. as a, So they already know. So there's not like... They already know. Yeah, so yeah. they know that yeah. they're going to have... So somebody proof of funds, what, like, I don't know how it works where you are, but I'm just thinking mm-hmm. as an example, sometimes people's proof of funds is a line of credit that they're borrowing money from one property to purchase another... Mm-hmm. How, what would you do in that case? I know it's a technical one, but. Yeah, it showed a mortgage statement showing the available line. Okay, so you would still show something for the proof of funds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times people are selling a house that's not closed yet, so I get an estimated closing statement showing how much they're going to net out of it. If, if you can't show all that stuff, then fine, just send the pre-approval letter. You know, like if you think it's going to do more harm than good, I'll just go back to revert to what it was. This is just one, I mean, this is literally like, I know we're diving into this and, and I, I think that it is good information for people to have. This is one example of what I was talking about when is the first thing that came to mind when I'm talking about the, the team, like the, the team interactions and the roles and how they change. So how you're constantly having to tweak. So I also hire for people who are 
can roll with the punches. Like there's a book out there. It's a stupid little like 20 page business book called who moved my cheese that came out probably 25 years ago. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. So like if, if you're familiar with it, your listeners are familiar with the book, it's basically like everybody knows somebody who can't deal with change at all. And they're just, they, they, they do things the way they do them. They don't care if, you know, they would rather make three right hand turns instead of making a left because they know how to turn right. And I don't do well. People who are like that don't do well on my team because your role is going to change. Like you're, it's not ever going to be the same because I'm always looking for ways to improve. Right. So people have to, I mean, I've got people on my team that have been in six different roles in three years. And what's the longest that you've had somebody on your team? Currently I've had somebody since 2010, another guy since 2000, end of 2012. That's good. And then I've got, you know, people coming along the way, a bunch of people, two, three years. I kind of got off into the weeds there about this because it was super interesting what you're talking about. But let's mm -hmm. go, I'll go back to the team thing and then I want to talk about systems in a minute. But so in terms of the team, what other processes, so you have that 12 questions that you just came up with in your mind, but is there anything mm -hmm. else you do when you're hiring? Do you do any kind of personality profiles? Do you do like, what does that look like? I don't. Most of the people that I'm hiring have come referred from either I, I know them personally from, you know, other other companies or they come referred from other people. Um, I can't remember the last person that I hired from scratch off of just like a actually last. Yeah, there's a couple of them that I've hired in the last two years that that came off of just like, a you know, soliciting for resumes. So honestly, I'm I'm really bigger about like. I'll hire the person, not the resume. Like I don't look at the, I hardly look at the resume at all. Okay. So what characteristics do you look for in a person then? Qualitatively at the resume, meaning I look at how it's put together and less about what's actually in there. So I'm really trying to get a feel for the person. So I want the jockey, not the horse. Right. And that's really how, it, and so a lot of it's gut. A lot of it is like, how, how am I going to feel about having this person come to the office every day? Am I going to be able to joke with them? Can they take a joke? Because our office is pretty like brutal when it comes to stuff like that if you can't hang if you can't dish it out and take it like you're not gonna last it's just how we are so like i'm really looking more at that like we're not doing rocket science here like you can teach people how to how to do stuff like so you're really just i'm looking at the person right that's good okay so i want to ask about so i always think about your business there's kind of three parts and there's uh leads which we talked about there's team now systems so how do you not let anything fall through the cracks or what kind of programs or softwares or like, yeah, how are you making sure that if you're closing 10 million a month that you're not like dropping the ball? Yeah. Uh, well, I think acceptance that balls will be dropped is part of it. And there's a certain threshold of which you're okay. There being errors. I'll, I'll give you an example, literally just from yesterday, I had a random lead that came in and we don't normally have just randoms that come in and fill out an application before even talking to me. And this one came through my website filled out a full application, was referred, and for the referral source, put in a realtor's name who I looked up, never worked with this realtor before. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So I sent an email, like forwarded the app as it came in, sent it to my team and said, hey, I have no idea who this guy is. Uh, I don't know who the agent is. This is, can you reach out to him and, and see, try to get a time to have him come in because he lives locally. And so pretty excited about getting just a random, I'm like, wow, this is rare for us. So this is good. But wrote the email internally and my assistant reached out to him, had a good conversation, followed up. And when she followed up with him on email to basically say like, hey, it was great talking to you. Let's figure out a time to meet. She, for some reason, responded to the email that I had sent. And when you go back and read the email, like out of context, it says like, I have no idea who this guy is. So you can read it kind of two ways. The, the actual text of it was, I have no idea who this guy is. I don't know who this agent is. Can you set up a time to talk? And I suppose in going back and reading it, you can read it with a couple of tones. One of them is like, I have no idea who this guy is. Like, who the heck is he? You know, and that's kind of how the buyer read it. Oh, yeah, or, right. You know, so like she accidentally like forwarded that internal communication. So then he, he responded back saying like, well, this guy is a client, potential client that you just lost because of blah, blah, blah. Like, so, you know, it's one of those kind of total misinterpretations. But clearly she shouldn't have forwarded that. It was a total accident, though. So like. She was really hard on herself, like she was beating herself up over it. And I really came back and said, listen, like I'm errors are gonna happen. Like I screw up a hundred times a day. Like this is you just really have to be like you have to you have to be okay with not being perfect. Like, yeah, clearly you shouldn't have forwarded that, but 
really like it's like me getting mad at you for accidentally like dropping a glass of water and the glass breaking like if you did it every day it would be like okay yeah if you did every day then that's exactly so it's like some of these things you got to just be accept that you're not going to be 100 percent. so part of that like not slipping through the cracks is understanding that per the amount of volume that we currently have so we'll talk about in transaction based on the amount of volume that you have there's a certain threshold like if you're only doing five million a month and i've got six people on my team putting this through, like I expect 97 to 98%, two to 3% error rate on any given task, just because nobody's perfect. But if we're doing 15 million a month, then I'm going to be okay with like maybe 5% error rate. If anything ever starts getting to 10%, you know, that's when we have uh, obviously some misalignment with um, agreements or expectations of what we're doing. So that's when I start to address things. So the first part of this is accepting the Things are going to happen. Can I ask you a question? Sorry to interrupt. Have you, I've noticed there's a lot of mortgage people that I've talked to and they'll get to a certain volume, maybe 25, 30 million. And because there's such a control freak, they can't let go to build a team, to hire an assistant. Mm -hmm. So were you ever that person or, and if you weren't, what advice would you say to somebody who has that problem? So I had a partner when I first started my company and he was definitely much more conservative when it came to hiring because he had had some bad experiences in the past. And so the the hardest hire that I ever had to make was my first, like going for, I literally, when I started, I did everything. I originated, I did all the sales. I did a hundred percent of the processing. I did everything like from soup to nuts, everything. So my first hire was the biggest hurdle. And then what I realized pretty quickly is as soon as you are able to delegate and not have to do something that you hate doing anymore, it's a pretty liberating and freeing thing. So um, pretty much since then, I have had this like sense of anytime I'm doing something that not only is not my highest and best, but I just don't like doing. Like I'm probably really good at going out and putting a file together. Like I know how to put a file together. It's not my highest and best and I don't particularly like doing it. Whenever that happens, whenever I find myself doing something that I don't like or that I don't believe is my highest and best, I'm pretty quickly looking to solve that either through technology or through um, through a hire or through a delegating process of my existing team. Right. So I, I haven't struggled with that, but I know there's a lot of people that do. And most of that just comes from a place of fear and almost always a fear or or having been snake bit in the past when making the bad hire. Almost always, whenever you make that hire, you start looking at like, I can't believe I, I used to do that all the time. Like, how did I even move? Mm-hmm. So like for me, I, I focus way more, maybe too much on top line revenue rather than bottom line. Um, Cause I just feel like if I can grow the top line, it's easy to trim the fat hard to like, you can get super efficient. You'd be the most efficient loan officer that makes 80 grand a year ever, but that's not what I want to do. So I'm fine having a little bit of an efficiency, maybe a little bit of even bloating in my team if it means that I can run faster and grow my top line revenue. So I just really focus only on top line as much as possible. And then when you get to a certain point, I will, uh, we can go back and sort of backtrack and trim the fat. Right. That's a really good advice, actually. So, and it sounds like, well, like you mentioned about how this mistake that was made with the email and how you were like, hey, you know what, you're, you're, assistant was beating yourself up and you're like, Hey, those things happen. And mm-hmm. the fact that you're that type of manager also helps that you're, you're going to be okay with the odd, like you said, two to 3%. Sometimes things are going to go wrong and we just have to yeah. own it and, and learn from it and move on. Right. Yeah. Especially when it's an isolated thing like that. If somebody, you know, if that was the fourth time that she had done it in three months and you know, it's a different conversation because it's, it's habitual. Right. Maybe there's an issue there with moving too fast, but there's an issue with, you know, you need to slow down, but I don't think that that's the case. And I don't want people to go slow because they're afraid of making one mistake. Like right. I feel like if I would have if I would have beat her up really hard on that, it would have cost me so much. Yeah, she wouldn't have made that mistake again. But how slow would she go? Right, which would cost you too to avoid making that mistake, which would cost me a lot more. That's that's a really uh, good insight. One of the things after 150 plus of these interviews, two biggest regrets: should have got a CRM sooner. The first one, the second one, or there's, these are kind of tied is I should have hired an assistant sooner. Both almost always everybody yeah. says that. So if you've been in the business any amount of time, two things like I should have got my crap together with my CRM or how I keep yeah. track of my clients. And the second one is, yeah. uh, so that, that's what I want to ask you about next. So how do you mm-hmm. keep track of your, what are you using? What software platforms are you using to keep mm-hmm. everything, you know, in communication? This is another one of those like constant sources of improvement. Hard part about a CRM is like, 
there's no perfect one out there on, and, and like everyone has its own quirks and has its shortcomings and, you know, some do everything and that's their problem is they do everything. So you end up doing nothing because you have this paralysis by analysis. So I think part of like implementing a CRM is like taking in bite-sized chunks and just doing at least the stuff that is really good. But what, what ends up happening a lot is like, okay, I'm paying X amount for this CRM and I'm only using 10% of it. You know, it's basically using it as a repository to keep my past clients, but it's not doing all the stuff it can. So that can be a cause of a source of frustration for people. And you just have to understand that that's just nature of the beast. So we actually use a few different pieces of software to track clients. It depends on the stage that they're in and the uses that we want out of it. So for our, our main CRM is a uh, mortgage CRM called Be In Touch. Not a huge fan of it. Probably wouldn't choose it if I had to go from scratch, but we've put so much time and effort into it that's already kind of tricked out for how we like to use it. It has some shortcomings that I'm not I'm not super happy with, but the pain of going through another transition into something else only to find out that that has its own set of shortcomings, I feel like allows me to stay with, with this one. Probably wouldn't, if I was choosing from scratch and like Be In Touch went out of business tomorrow, it wouldn't be terrible but it does enough for what we use it for. But we've supplemented that with a few other pieces of software that do what we're looking to do a little bit better. So what other things do you use? Pipedrive is a, um, it's not really a CRM because it doesn't do like a lot of drip marketing. It's more of a lead, lead follow-up system. You can, it's super flexible. It's not mortgage specific. It's really popular. It's the most intuitive graphic interface on it is really easy. It's a lot of drag and drop. It's very like the way it lines out. Like your what you're doing is less textual and more, you know, drag and drop and more customer or interface. It's got a good user experience or user user interface. Sorry, user interface is good. GUI is very good on it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's super easy. It just it puts everything into a like a, a pipeline process, so you can use it for your pre approvals. So, like if there's eight different things that you want to happen on every time you pre approve somebody, and they maybe have multiple people that are doing this. So like one person maybe is running credit and putting all this stuff in one person's following up with the person to get additional documentation or even the same person, but you have different people. So like maybe you send out a request for documentation and it's just sitting there and you need to do certain things with that client to prompt them to remember to do that. And you have to track that somehow because you don't want them just slipping through the cracks. Um, you can put them in that bucket and you every day go look in that bucket and say, okay, here's the five people that I've sent stuff out to them and upload their stuff. I'll follow up with them in this way. So, we use that to, you can do that and be in touch too, but it's just much, it's not as friendly. It's not as easy to, to automate I found. And then for clients collecting of documentation and giving milestone updates and really utilizing some of the automation uh, within the system, we use Flowify, which I know you're familiar with. It's a it's incredible piece of software that I've been kind of on the ground floor with the founder of for since he basically right when he started it and we've had a lot of interactions with him on ways to improve and he's just done an amazing job at, at continuing to listen to his clients and adding additional features without bogging down the system and making it too complex. Um, so that's one that everybody should, should be looking at. Like it's, it's the best piece of software out there for the mortgage space right now. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So there was a bunch of questions that I had sent you and we didn't talk about hardly any of them. So I <laughs> hope that's okay because this was a really good interview. I enjoyed the parts we talked about with the review and then the team stuff and so on the system. So I want to add last question I'm going to ask you. There's this guy, Derek Sivers, and he says, if you want to go, we call the destination and ask for directions. And so I had mentioned to you before we're doing this thing, the $100 million journey, taking yeah. my business partner's business from $8 million a year to 100 And we're like, okay, we're going to try to apply all some of the stuff in this interview we're going to definitely be looking, going back to. But what advice would you give her so that she can get to that to that level? So I know you're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Mm -hmm. So he talks about this thing called micro speed and macro patience. And what that means is like you're being playing for the long run. And in, in our space, the long run means a big database of past clients. Like you want the end goal to be, you know, in 15 years, I want to have whatever a lot of number is for your market. It's different for every market, but 15 years, I want to be able to just kind of do nothing and live off of my past clients and have enough past clients in my database who are familiar with me who like and trust me, who will refer me to other people that you can just live almost like a financial planner, not taking on any new clients and just servicing his, his existing book. That's how we want to treat that. 
so if you have 2,000, 3,000, however many past clients that you have in there, you know, on average, everybody's going to move every five to seven years. They're going to refinance every X amount of time, depending on the market. They're going to refer. If you're good at what you do, they're going to refer, you know, one in five people will refer you at least once a year. Like at some point, that's a big enough business in and of itself. That's the maybe the end goal. So you have to have patience to know that that doesn't happen overnight. But you have to have speed in the micro in the short term of like, not letting a minute gets wasted. Like you have to move quickly, react quickly, do everything in your power every single day to move as quickly as you can, to build as quickly as you can with end goal, be this really patient thing. So you have to do the things on it. You have to have your daily disciplines that work towards what your long-term goals are. Now, the hard part about that is you're focusing on these long-term payouts, but you also have to make money now too. So looking for opportunities that serve both of those goals is huge. That's why I look at, um, you know, my whole goal is to focus on consumer direct to build, to use that to build referral relationships and to use both of those to parlay into the past client business that ultimately I want to live off of. Right. Dude, that's awesome. I'm going to share this with Jules, and uh, this has been a fantastic interview. Where can people find you online? AndrewSauce.com. Thanks, man. I really appreciate your time today, and I hope you continue to crush your business. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. Hey, Broker Nation. Thanks for checking out this episode. I absolutely love chatting with Andrew. He had some awesome advice for if you want to build a team, and also the stuff on Yelp and the reviews was just totally dynamite. I want to give you an update on the $100 million journey. So last week we published episode two. It's a video documentary, building my business partner's business from 8 million a year to 100. And in the episode, we had talked about how we found Jules a key employee and some of the mistakes we made. So you can check that out at ilovemortgagebrokering.com slash 100MDJ. And coming next week, you should be able to even see the episodes right in the feed uh, on your iTunes. So thank you so much for checking this out. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. If you do, you'll get three deals in the next week. Okay, that's not entirely true, but we'd really appreciate it. Also, you can check out everything at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. See you next week.